0: When we think about blockchain in particular and how, I mean, we we actually believe that this is probably the single biggest wealth opportunity of our lifetime. We really do. It's it's probably, uh, in our estimation, close to a $40 trillion opportunity. So way, way bigger than the internet. Like way way bigger. It's going to have. It's going to be. It's going to run a lot deeper, um, and it, and it's based around this concept where the way we think and we and again Rob and Ken and I would have discussed this a lot over the last two years is when you think about the internet, it it basically decentralised content, and then, you know, you had the next phase was decentralising commerce, so you you know anybody could could sell anything on the internet just like Amazon, um, and then you had. De- decentralization of communication so i could communicate with you i didn't need to go through a verizon i could just you know use a, use an application uh, voice over ip but while we decentralized commerce and we decentralized communication and we decentralized content the one thing that hadn't you know we didn't think about and didn't look at was decentralizing trust so we still had all of these trusted third parties facebook's and google's and all the banks, etc. And what happened was when, when we decentralised everything else and we didn't decentralise those institutions, we created honeypots. And those honeypots, whether it be personal data that was hacked or whether it be, was money that was stolen, um, we created these honeypots that allowed hackers you know, a very easy point of attack, central point of attack. So what blockchain is now enabling is this ability Uh, to decentralise trust and to create a new trust economy where I can do anything I want directly with you based on a smart contract and based on a currency that we both agree on. And I think that that's what's really, really exciting
1: here. This is the Digital Irish Podcast, a show about Irish innovation with entrepreneurs, corporate innovators and global leaders. This show was brought to you by the Digital Irish Network, a not-for-profit organisation with the mission to promote both Irish innovation and Irish innovators globally. I'm Patrick McAndrew, and on today's show I speak with Kieran Hines, the co-founder and managing partner of Cosimo Ventures, who are a deep tech investment firm based in Boston, New York and Dublin. And in the second part of this episode, I will also be speaking with Fiona Edwards about her startup Apis Protect, ...which is a tech company that helps beekeepers improve the management of their hives... ...and prevent the loss of colonies. When we launched this podcast back in October of 2019... ...I asked that people reach out to us and share suggestions... ...on who they would like to hear interviewed on the podcast. And within about 24 hours of the first episode going live... ...we had received two emails recommending that we have today's guest Kieran Hines on the show... And Kieran was suggested because people recommended his visionary outlook on the future of tech, but also spoke very highly of the opportunities that he gave Irish companies to expand to the US through his investment firm Cosimo Ventures. And in sitting down with Kieran, the challenge was actually that there were so many things that we could cover, because he has such a wide array of experience from working in multiple different industries and has worked all around the world. But for today's episode, for this particular conversation, the focus is all about his foundational years in business and the work that he does today in deep tech with Cosimo Ventures. And we get into really interesting stuff, talking about blockchain, a little bit about cryptocurrencies, and also about the introduction of a buoyant currency, which his firm not too long ago invested in. And this conversation, although a lot of it is about future and tech and innovation, It's not just future focused because a lot of the conversation comes back to history and the past and how we can review history and how important it is to do so to understand the past and make better decisions in the future. And Kieran knows this very well because he studied history and politics in college. And we get into opening up this conversation talking about how that actually gave him a competitive advantage in business.
0: It's funny, actually, when I'm here and people say, what did you do in college? Where did you do your MBA? Um, I I tell them, no, I did history and politics. And their first reaction is, well, that's no use to you now, is it? Um, And I say, actually, it's quite the opposite because it's probably one of the best things that I ever did and I actually don't have an MBA, and being involved in venture capital and not having an MBA, I think I'm probably the only person in the US that that, that doesn't. But I always say to people, and I know we'd probably move on to it, but but my time at CIE Tours was actually a live MBA, uh, because they actually gave me a territory and said, where we had no business whatsoever, and said, go build a business for CIE Tours in that territory, and that was the greatest learning experience from a business perspective. But then, in terms of, of how that influenced me in terms of business. Uh, I originally actually wanted to be a broadcast journalist, so I wanted to be sitting on that side of the table, not, not this side. I think it, what, it, what it did was it, it, it did a number of things. One was it taught me to think strategically um, and to, to be analytical. Both history and, and the politics side, um, I mentioned Richard Sinnett there. You know, we were analysing election polls and you know how they were formed and how to get you know how to get the best representation from a thousand people and you know making them you know both quantitative and qualitative and uh, you know the insights like that were were very very deep in terms of analysis and strategy and thinking. But also, it gave me this um, this ability to be able to write and argue. In my writing, uh, for one point of view or another, and I found that in- incredibly valuable when I was involved in a, you know, maybe a business disagreement later on, where I was trying to articulate my my perspective on a particular issue, and I'd lay it out very, very clearly, almost like a legal argument, uh, if if you like, um, and that so that was something else. And the other thing, of course, we had to do was we certainly Des and I got involved with the uh, Politics Society there, and in fact we founded uh, a magazine called Opinion Magazine, and I believe it's still there today, uh, many, many years later. So um, it's something that I was always very proud of. But again, because we were involved in the Politics Society, we got involved in debating. So it, 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 it helped my communication skills, my presentation skills, again, getting up in front of people and making you know solid arguments, because if you didn't make a solid argument, you really would you know, uh, you're going to get get absolutely toasted, you'd know all about it, yeah.
1: Because something that interests me about people who study who have studied history, be it in college or just through their own research and and readings that work in business is that they have the the fortune of often looking at things in long sweeping views I I suppose a popular person in modern culture right now is Ray Dalio uh, with the way that he has made observations on the financial industry where he talks about people are just looking at this kind of when we look at a year or a month or a day you know we're looking at this small figment in time of a of a long sweeping trend of how we move in these paradoxes and trends in society And um, people who have looked at people who observe history can see the trends that are coming up and up and over again that happened in the past. Has that served you when you looked at business or just even having that observation that many people don't, where they would be quite carried away by the trends that are happening right before their eyes?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I've always been, no matter what I've ever got involved with uh, from an entrepreneurial perspective, I've always looked at, you know, where it was, where it is now and where I felt it could be, Um, not just. A year or two into the future but maybe 10 years into the future Um, and I have a couple of examples where where that worked to my advantage and and where it actually didn't work to my advantage I was actually maybe thinking ahead too far ahead Um, and then when you run out of money in a company and you can't implement you can't stay going for as long as as the the market adjusts then you know you're going to lose out in that scenario but certainly yeah and again that's something we're currently doing um, in in my company Cosmo Ventures
1: Having studied history and um, having a degree in that, are there any historical figures uh, that that come to mind that have influenced you and or have had a had a marking on your outlook on life?
0: Yeah, I mean, very much um, as a student in Oakland's College, um, I would have been a great admirer of Pierce and would have been very uh, a big student of the nineteen sixteen rebellion and why it happened and you know why in the face of almost certain defeat. Uh, that they still went ahead and they sacrificed their lives um mightn't have agreed with him on everything but but certainly it was he was probably the the f- the figure that stood out most for me when i was in uh, in, in school and in, in high school or you know in, in Outlands. Um, on the politics side a lot of people would maybe criticize him and would think of him um in in a negative light but i i, I don't and that's charlie hahi uh, Charlie Haughey was for me a very pioneering international politician that brought Ireland onto a stage it had never been on before. I mean, what he did with Temple Bar, what he did with the Financial Services Centre in Dublin, uh, back in the days. So he he, he was a tr- uh, to me he was a true visionary, and I know he mightn't have done everything the way people uh, would expect, you know, a politician. But th- you know, those were those times, and uh, you know, for right or for wrong, those those are the ways that that, that politics worked back then, and. Um, it's very, very different now, but you still can't take away how visionary he was when he saw, you know, derelict buildings along the Liffey on one side and created Temple Bar and derelict Wasteland on the other side and created the Financial Services Centre. Um, and he was, you know, I, I, I just have, I had great admiration for him and maybe that that type of, that's, that certainly influenced my outlook on, you know, being visionary, being pioneering, seeing things that are possible and i suppose the other one that would lead into that which has uh, from the american perspective was i would always have been a great admirer of jfk um and he he was passionate and and not only passionate about you know about dreaming big but letting everybody know that you could be whatever you wanted to be you could achieve whatever you wanted to achieve and i think i you know from studying jfk from from watching a lot of movies that related to jfk um i certainly got that that sense of you know, coming to America was about a dream, about building a dream for yourself, and that nothing was impossible, and that you could dream as big as you wanted to, to dream. Um, and maybe, you know, if anything, I always encourage Irish entrepreneurs to think about that, um, and not to think small, not to not to be, you know, confined by the size of, of the island that we grew up in, and really to think bigger.
1: Where do you think that comes from? Do you think it comes down to the size of the nation? That literally the size of the scale of a market would would make you think smaller. Yeah, I, I think it has to be that because
0: you know you don't see any you know in in percentage terms like you, do, you it's there's the same amount of entrepreneurs per head of population in Ireland as there is in the US. So so it's it's uh, it's just about the mentality about the way that that we think. Uh, well, not certainly. I can't put myself on that boat, but. A lot of entrepreneurs we come across they they think that an exit for five million or ten million uh, is is success and whereas I think if they stayed with the company for three to four it could be Three to four more months in some cases, or three to four more years. You know they could be thinking more in terms of a hundred or two hundred or three hundred million dollar exit. But we don't think in those terms. We we weren't taught to to uh, to think like that. Um, and I think it's it's a lot of it comes down for me. It's attitude to failure. Mm. You know, uh, failure in this country in the U.S. is is a is a brand that you wear proudly on your you know, on yeah. your shoulder. Um, whereas failure in Ireland is something to be avoided. Um, something not to be talked about and I think as a as a nation we need to change that mindset um, in in people in our younger people as they come up through college and have them you know try, fail, try again, fail better you know have that attitude um, and that's something here I found that you know people people don't care if you fail or in fact it's like, applauded. Like, like I said, it's, an, it's it's almost it's almost applauded. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So you had gone to UCD to study history and politics. You had an intention of getting into broadcast journalism from that. Yep. What happened along there that led you into the path of business?
0: Um, it was it was purely f- um, fortuitous. Um, I I actually after I left college, I came to the US. I got a Donnelly visa, visa, uh, came over here and really was trying to, I suppose, find myself. Um, I hate that phrase, but that's really what I was trying to do. I mean, I, I, I came over here and I did any type of work. I, it wasn't really career-oriented. In fact, I ended up um, painting Estee Lauder's house in the Hamptons.
1: Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah. Was so that, that must have been the virtuous job. That came it around.
0: was. Well, my uncle actually was here at the time and uh, he he was he had a crew that were working on the house, so, so he got me the job there. So I uh, ended up meeting the the, the Lauder family and and various grandkids as they they would come for the weekend or whatever. So uh, it was a beautiful beautiful property out in the Hamptons. But uh, so that so that's that that's what I was doing at the time. And then um, I had to go back. There was there was a personal tragedy in our family, um, a, a car accident where my uh, I had a number of family members, my grandmother and my uncle, my aunt, unfortunately were killed. And and uh, so I, I went back at that time. And um, uh, you know I certainly. I, I felt like for my for my family's sake, I had to stay there and I couldn't come back to the U.S. at that time. Um, and a friend of mine in Goatstown, where I grew up, very close to UCD, uh, said to me, would you consider a job in CIE? And I said, um, I'd consider a job, you know, absolutely anywhere at the moment because uh, I was a little bit lost. And so I, I, uh, I went and I did the exam and I was very, very lucky to be placed in CIE tours. Which I mentioned earlier, um, and CIE Tours was a branch of Corus Unipair, or CIE that runs, you know, the national transportation uh, system in Ireland. But it was a small company; it was about fifty people. It had an office in in uh, in New York at the time, uh, one in Germany, one in London, one in Paris. So it was what it was a small company feel, uh, but had an international offices, and it fascinated me, and I was very uh, very taken. By and, and and I know a lot of people who, who work in tourism will tell you this. You get you get bit by the tourism bug. Um you when you're out promoting Ireland, there's a tremendous satisfaction in that. Um I'm very obviously very proud of my country, but when you're out representing it in your business, you become even prouder and it kind of it, it gets a hold of you. And and that's really what what got me into that whole area and I had a, a great manager there Kieran O'Leary and a great mentor in Joe Keena and another one Vincent Callahan, who really encouraged me even though I was very young and they threw me into very high-powered business situations like I, I remember one time uh, being faced on a Friday with a trade union walkout um, of all of our bus drivers and, and the tours were starting on the Saturday morning and I was in charge of you know, over a hundred of these coaches, and um, and having to handle that situation between representatives, you know, at Broadstone and, and our office at Abbey Street. I mean, I was in my early twenties. I mean, this was something I'd never never seen before. But it was just. But they encouraged me to be able to. You know, they didn't try and jump in and take over. They actually were you mediating me between the f- two parties. Yeah, basically yeah. mediating and trying to trying to get these guys to to, to drive our tour buses. You know of 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 American tourists who were coming in on the following Saturday and Sunday. You know, so it was it was really high pressure situation. How did it work out? Uh, We always managed. It was it was. This was brinksmanship, and I I, like I've never seen it. It, it, And it always happened on a Friday, and it was always at four thirty or five o'clock, but it always resolved itself by about seven. You know, so it it was just there was a recurring pattern here. So it's uh, it was just a really you know it was a baptism of fire. And then, you know, being moved into, like I said, you know, sent to Germany for six months and, um, and then uh, being asked to take Scandinavia, Holland, Belgium and, and Finland, uh, which were just basically virgin territories that we had zero business from any of those countries and basically told, you know,
1: here's a budget, go build a business. And was the business to draw tourists from those nations to Ireland? Exactly. But through, through uh, tour operators, private operators
0: or, or public operators, uh, big coach tour operators uh, in, those, in those particular countries or incentive houses or conference companies trying to encourage them to
1: hold their, their meetings, their events in Ireland. And,
0: and that's, that was my job. Because
1: you mentioned that this was like your, your real life MBA, the, yeah. that experience where people that go to, visit, go to study an MBA, it's, it's a very theoretical application sometimes, but you got to be on the ground trying to figure it all out and well, that was the, see how business worked. The, yeah, exactly. But I mean, the toughest part of it, I mean,
0: you can ask anybody, any entrepreneur, the toughest thing in any business is sales, is driving sales. That's the problem. You don't have a business if you don't have any sales, you don't have any customers. So that was the primary thing. But then I had to look at the whole, you know, the costings on, you know, the business that was coming in, I was producing the marketing materials, I was actually producing the operating plans and operating those tours as well. So I, I saw the financial side, I saw the sales and marketing side, um, and I saw the operational side. So it really was it was every aspect of the business. And that's why when I left CIE Tours, I was 24 years of age, uh, just turning 25, and I started my first business from there. Well, what was that business? That business um, was I basically comp- I, I set up a private company competing not just with CIE Tours but with all the others that I had been competing with as CIE Tours, um, and it was it was a conference and incentive business. So I didn't want to deal in general tours. I wanted to, to specifically work in in the conference and event and uh, in incentive space, and that's what I did. Um, so what the, do you
1: mean by the incentive space? Incentive
0: spaces, uh, incentive houses would send their top forty performers to Ireland on a very high end trip. They would stay in the the Ashford castles and the Kilkey castles and Adair manors of this world. Um, so they were just very very high end tours that would have motivational pieces to them as well.
1: And how did that first experience business, your own personal venture? How did that how did that go when you started off?
0: Um, that went it went pretty well. I mean, we immediately started. Um, you know, working on uh, different events, uh, different conferences. We're, we're, I was able to be a lot more flexible. Um, and, you know, we worked on really interesting stuff. Like, uh, again, you won't remember this, but Steve Collins fought Chris Eubank at Mill Street. And that was one of our first uh, ever events that we we worked with Brian Peters, the boxing promoter. Um, and then we did the world's largest, or sorry, um, Ireland's largest conference, medical conference, the World Epilepsy Congress, uh, in 97 that had 5,000 people come in from all over the world. That was an incredible experience. But we, we created quite a niche because we, again, it goes back to um, uh, being, I suppose, pioneering in a way. We I, I saw technology and the application of technology to that industry back then being making it more efficient. We were able to be much more cost effective by by using online systems way ahead of anybody else doing it. And uh, so it, it was... Um, that, that, that gave us the edge. So we won a lot of conference business uh, you know, around that time. And from the age of 25, how long did you stay running that particular business? Um, I, we actually merged that company and then it was subsequently sold. So I sold my share in it and it was subsequently uh, sold to MCI Travel um, or MCI Group, I should say. They're one of the, the largest conference event association management companies in the world now. Um, and uh, how th- old were you at that stage? Took it on. I was probably in my early thirties. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And so. were you happy to have left that industry at that time? do you feel like it had run its course? You know, when I when I when I left, yeah, it, we we rebranded the company as Ovation, um, which, you know, uh, was the eventually the company that was that was uh, bought by MCI. But after that, I felt, you know, what I, I'd like to have another go at doing this from scratch again, and I did. And I probably shouldn't have done that. I probably should have moved on, but I didn't. I felt I could still be involved in the area. I still had that you know conference event, Ireland tourism bug. I couldn't get rid of it. I couldn't shake it and formed a company and 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 that one, while it was successful early on, uh, we had to wind it up eventually. and I, I, I just i I felt myself I had run out of energy for the space. Uh, at the end of that and I definitely wanted to try something new and then of course technology came along and that gave me a whole new lease of life and he, I'm, here I am today in front yeah. of you as a result
1: so where did your where did your attentions go to then around 05, 06 I came here
0: 8 years ago to, uh, to the US I met Rob Frasca my co-founder and co-managing partner six years ago Uh, we always say we we always like to say we dated for a year so I was working with four Irish companies that were looking to grow into the U.S. market Rob happened to be working with four Boston-based companies so we worked on each other's companies for a period of a year we really we got these
1: companies in the tech industry all in the tech industry yeah Yeah,
0: absolutely all in the tech industry Um, and so I was helping them you know either raise money or I was operationally involved with them and he was doing the same so what we decided to do was work across each other's companies so I ended up work, working on eight companies and he worked on eight companies but obviously we, we divided the, the load between us so but we we realized from that year that we really got on well together we were really well aligned and that our skill sets were complementary um, so again he's got a really he's, he's an engineer uh, went to RIT uh, flew jets for the Navy actually in the first Gulf War as well um, quite an incredible background both uh, as a naval officer and, and an entrepreneur um, and then i I here, here was I coming from Ireland with all this international experience of you know working in you know the conference and event industry uh, really throughout the globe in places like Argentina and Indonesia and australia um, and he he really liked that international aspect of what I brought and that broad business background and acumen that I had and I really liked the fact that he had both a, you know an entrepreneurial spirit and was very like-minded in that regard, but he also brought really, really uh, solid tech background as an engineer and and an, and an entrepreneur that had built successful tech companies. So we formed Cosimo five years ago.
1: And was the intention when you founded it that it was going to be an investment fund in deep tech?
0: Yeah, we always wanted to have a venture fund. Uh, what we realized um, is that we didn't, even though we had great track records as entrepreneurs, um, I think it's in our current PPM, we have a, a 9.5x return to our investors as entrepreneurs, as a team. Um, we didn't have any track record as fund managers. And it is, uh, it is not an easy thing to raise a first-time fund. So we were building track record. And then we went out with Cosmo Capital, which was our first attempt at raising a venture fund. And a couple of things happened. One, we found um, that, the, yes, we had a, we had an issue because we were a first-time fund. Um, but people respected the fact that we had great entrepreneurial backgrounds. Um, but number two, the feedback we were getting from the market was that the, the traditional 10 to 12 year hold, lack of liquidity and private equity and venture capital was starting to be a turnoff for family offices and high net worth individuals.
1: Can you just explain that a little bit more, just to let people know how that all operates? Sure. Well, a
0: traditional venture fund or a private equity fund, um, if you, you make a capital commitment to that, um, and again, it would have to be a substantial commitment. I mean, most most venture funds wouldn't uh, take any any anything less than half a million or a million dollars. And in fact, the bigger ones, uh, particularly out in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, you'd need to be making commitments or five of five or ten million, you know, minimum before you'd even get into some of those. And so, you make your capital commitment. Um, you don't have to actually pay over the money to the fund manager at that time. And what the fund manager does is it starts to make investments over the first, you know, one, two, three years of the fund's life, and it makes capital calls. So it'll it'll draw capital probably over the first four years of the fund, but it'll draw it down in increments. And then it it invests that over that period. And then there's the whole period, the follow-on investment period, um, and then by the time you get, you know, to 10 years, you might start to see uh, some kind of, of expectation of return at that time. But often funds then go into one or two year extensions, which can lead to that 12 year uh, life cycle. But tr- throughout that time, I mean, there are there are certain ways of getting your money back out during that time, but they're very limited and very, very difficult. Um, and that's, you know, so that was, that was very strong feedback that we got when we tried to launch a traditional fund. And then as, you know, Rob, uh, well, Ken Lang joined us as our CTO. Ken had a very deep background uh, in blockchain. And he and Rob and I said one day, why don't we effectively eat our own dog food here and, and, and tokenize our own fund for two very strong reasons. Uh, we didn't just do it just to have the experience, but it was great to have the experience of actually setting up a tokenized uh, venture fund that is a security um, and is registered with the SEC um, But going through that whole tokenization process taught us that these are the things that we need to think about So that was that was a valuable process But the second reason we wanted to tokenize was to democratize the whole asset class because like I mentioned to you You, you know you need to be able to write a half a million dollar check to get into a venture fund now Within the US, if you're accredited, it's as low as 250 And if you're, if you're outside the US, it's as low as $10,000 to get into our fund. So that's, we've really brought down the barrier to entry. Uh, not to everybody, but we've really opened it up. But the, I think the, the biggest thing, and this is what we, we, were, we were responding to what the family offices and the institutions and the endowments and the high net worth individuals were telling us, was we, we dealt with the lack of liquidity through tokenization
1: and you've mentioned uh, token holders and and, and purchasing and, and selling your tokens can you just explain what that is that process the process of tokenization because uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain gets a lot of airtime um, across the media but tokenization is not something that is commonly discussed and that's what you guys have really like bought into by making uh, so Cosimo X is what it allows people to do that right Cosmo X is simple sim-
0: yeah simply put it's fractional ownership on the blockchain. That's what it is. So, you know, our, our token, the Cosmo X token, is based on an ERC-20 token on Ethereum. Um, so Ethereum is, is a platform on the blockchain. A platform on the blockchain, probably the second most famous after Bitcoin, uh, Ether being the currency. So it's a very well-recognized platform and, and very, very well-developed. So and, and people understand it and they know it and they're, they're very comfortable with it. So, so the token is, is effectively, it's based on that platform. Um, And it's if you buy, for example, say we have 100 tokens uh, and you buy 10 tokens, therefore you own 10 percent of the fund. Uh, It's as simple as that. It's fractional ownership, but it's on the blockchain. Everyone can see it. And because and and again, we have to differentiate here between uh, securities and non-securities. This is a security token. So we have to be fully compliant with SEC guidelines and we are.
1: And uh, to go back then to kind of discuss the broader spectrum of deep tech. I suppose uh, deep tech in in its your investments in comparison to silicon valley t- traditional silicon Valley venture funds are are you guys looking at it with a much broader span because is it is it more difficult to see a uh, direct application of your products instantaneously and do you have to give certain windows of time um, to when you can see these these investments actually starting to come into activity
0: yeah some sometimes n- not always but uh we definitely try and take an exponential view and it's it's very difficult because as human beings we think in a linear fashion we don't think exponentially but but the computing power um you know that that is it's doubling every single year so we've got to try and get our mindsets into in five or six years, it might not be possible to do something now, but we know it'll be possible in five to six years' time. So so what is that going to look like? So so that's the way we kind of think. When, when we think about blockchain in particular and how, I mean, we, we actually believe that this is probably the single biggest wealth opportunity of our lifetime. We really do. It's, it's probably, uh, in our estimation, close to a $40 trillion opportunity. So way, way bigger than the internet. Like way way bigger. It's going to have. It's going to be. It's going to run a lot deeper, um, and it, and it's based around uh, this concept where the way we think and we and again Rob and Ken and I would have discussed this a lot over the last two years is when you think about the internet, it it basically decentralised content, and then, you know, you had the next phase was decentralising commerce, so you you know anybody could could sell anything on the internet just like Amazon, um, and then you had. De- decentralization of communication so I could communicate with you i didn't need to go through a verizon I could just you know use a use an application uh, voice over IP but the while we decentralized commerce and we decentralized communication and we decentralized content the one thing that hadn't you know we didn't think about and didn't look at was decentralizing trust so we still had all of these trusted you know uh, third parties Facebook's and Google's and all the banks, etc., and what happened was when when we decentralised everything else, and we didn't decentralise those institutions, we created honeypots, and those honeypots, whether it be personal data that was hacked, or whether it be, was money that was stolen, um, we created these honeypots that allowed hackers, you know, a very easy um, point of attack, central point of attack. So what blockchain is now enabling is this ability. Uh, to decentralize trust and to create a new trust economy where I can do anything I want directly with you based on a smart contract and based on a currency that we both agree on. And I think that that's what's really, really exciting here. And that's, that's the way we think about it from an overall perspective.
1: And um, something that I'm interested in then with that is because you're looking at it with, you're looking at it, as you said, with more of an exponential approach, do you have any do you have any systems in place for your decision making processes because naturally you can't rely on your own biases or human human error um how do, how do you balance that between looking at the kind of analysis of these companies analysis of the market and your own general observations because there's great value in that and you and your partners looking over over time and history do you have a system to balance all those three things we
0: a- we actually do we're very fortunate, Connor- uh, cantwell who i mentioned our partner in ireland connor was actually the youngest managing director of nielsen anywhere globally worldwide um and as you will know nielsen's a very process uh, driven company so we're very lucky to have him as a partner just
1: for um, people who don't know nielsen is uh, they would kind of give the the figures the viewership market figures market research yeah.
0: exactly yeah uh, um so again as i said very very process driven so when connor joined us as partner probably four years ago now, or it'll be four years in May, actually, um, Connor developed a system with us, which was a system of of analysis of, of our deal flow. So what we have is, like, for example, I think Connor would have looked at, or we looked at as a team, but 490 companies last year, and we invested in four. So you have to have some, yeah, you have to have some system of, of 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 analyzing those, but doing it in a way that is that is uh, systematic and consistent. And that's what Connor created for us effectively. Now we worked really hard on it you know with him, but he was the one that that drove it and pioneered it. so we've got we've got two different levels of scoring systems. So when we see a company first, we look at a business plan, We analyze it according to our scoring system. Does it fit within, is it exponential? Is it a huge opportunity? Is it creating a new market? Uh, Is it disrupting an existing market like Amazon again did to Sears? Um, You know, and then, you know, uh, how did we rate the entrepreneur? Uh, Was he or she somebody we could work with? Um, Do they know what they don't know? Uh, Something we're very, very strong on. How do you gauge that? Um, it, you can gauge that very quickly by, by just speaking with somebody um, and talking to them about what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are, uh, but also even in, in terms of a conversation, if they're constantly interrupting you or if they're disagreeing with you um, when you try to make a point, you can tell that they're just not listening uh, and they're not really willing to listen. Um, and that's something
1: we don't claim to know everything, but we've made a lot of mistakes and we don't want them to make the same mistakes. Have you overcome some previous mistakes by applying this this model? this this, this kind of systematic decision making model? Well, I, yes, I think we, we, yes, we definitely did. I think when Rob and I started out
0: first, some of the special purpose vehicle investments that we made were more gut reaction than analytical. Um, and I think but I think now where we are, where we're at now, in fact, we and maybe we were lucky because our, you know, there's one company we invested in called Novalea, which is a cybersecurity platform for medical devices. We didn't really do that in a systematic analytical way. And it's proven to be really, really successful. Um, Anita Finnegan is the CEO there. Um, it's out of Dundalk in Ireland, and they've got an office in Boston now, and they're really, really doing well. They've had subsequent investment and a lot of government money as well, uh, invested into them. So they're they're really, really starting to to uh, to gain major traction. Um, so that's one that we were looking with, I, I, I guess, um, because. It was definitely, we liked her, we liked the product, we liked the, the pilot customers that they had. And I suppose we had some kind of process in our minds we were going through, but it, it wasn't as ordered and as structured as it is now.
1: Are there companies uh, that you've invested in or kind of particular aspects of uh, technology in the future that excite you the most? As to the greatest impact that it's going to have, um, or the most unforeseen impact that it may have.
0: Do you know? I I, I think creating a global currency, um, and that that's one of been our one of our most significant investments. We invested in a, in a blockchain development company called Onero, uh, which is Greek for dream. Um, and they they have built the first project they've worked on is a is a virtual currency called Endow, which is spelled N D A U. I think that's got to be for me potentially the most game-changing, um, globally game-changing tech that that we're working on at the moment. Um, it just launched on its first exchange back in May. Um, it's almost, in fact, just recently, because of a major purchase, uh, has almost reached nearly 100 million in market cap. So it's put itself right up there in the top 50, you know, uh, virtual currencies or cryptocurrencies in the world. And just t- to see that develop from virtually nothing, just a concept, uh, although it was a very well-defined concept. Yeah, and a talk very us well through architect- that, because
1: it was a very interesting process of how kind of the fundamentals of Endow came to be.
0: Yeah, so um, again, it goes back to Ken Lang. Ken and Rob, as I mentioned, had the company Wiseware that they sold to Lycos, and they both worked there for a year um, in terms of earnout. So Ken went his way, Rob went his way, and uh, Ken came back into Rob's life about three years ago. And Rob introduced him to me and he was fascinated by what we were doing at Cosimo. And he, he asked, could he invest and could he become our, our chief technology officer? But anyway, Ken came back into Rob's life. And I had lunch with him one day here in New York, actually, in Fitzpatrick's Hotel. And he told me, what he, I asked him what he'd been working on for the last number of years. And he'd been investing and studying Bitcoin and Ethereum and Litecoin and all the early you know, cryptocurrencies. And and he made a very sweeping statement. He said, you know, I've been working with uh, people I trust here in New York and all throughout the US, people who are traders, people who are economists, people who are bankers, people who are computer scientists, people who are cryptographers and blockchain experts. And we've we've actually really delved into, you know, the, the cryptocurrency area. And we think there are 23 different challenges that need to be solved. Uh, like not twenty, not ten, twenty-three different challenges as a pure engineering mind, you know. So he took me through, painstakingly took me through every single one of those, and he took me through this concept of Endow and how what they had built out and architected to, to that point. Um so I went back to Boston to New York, or sorry, from New York, and I met with Rob and I said, Rob, you've got to take a look at this. I said, This this could change the world. This really could be the world's, you know, first true Digital virtual currency global uh, or sorry store value um, and I, I think th- th- there's really something here. So Rob looked at it. Ken came up. Uh, we had another you know multi-hour meeting and uh, again Rob was just as sold as I was. One thing we really liked about Ken and the team uh, and the way they looked at this currency was that they looked at it from a business and commercial perspective first and added the blockchain and the tech afterwards. They hadn't even built a blockchain, but they had come up with a concept of what they wanted to build based on different things like dispute resolution and, and identity and property rights and truths and, and price discovery. And they thought about all these things that are you know in, in the financial world, um, but hadn't thought about whether it would be built on Ethereum or whether, we, whether it would be its own blockchain yet. And we really, really like that. Um, so from there, it's evolved it's, and it's become, like I said, it's, it's, uh, it's almost 100 million in market cap. It's growing steadily. Um, for those people who know you know, uh, and are following cryptocurrency, um, it's not Bitcoin, it doesn't have that, that volatility, uh, that uh, lack of dependability, but it's also not a stable coin either. Um, and just to, to clarify, gold, that a stablecoin yeah.
1: is is linked to um,
0: a fiat currency, right? It, it's not, yeah, or gold or silver or in some physical assets. Some physical assets, and generally, it's it's backed one for one. So if you know, if and, if and if there's, there's gold, been
1: issues with that because they've seen how they can kind of manipulate markets by using these coins. So the, what's what's oh, I've seen now being referred to as, as a buoyant currency. Yeah. Yeah, um, it, it's uh, it, we actually, we named it a buoyant currency
0: because it, while it has the ability to rise in value as, as market demand dictates, um, it's algorithmically brought to market and it's algorithmic, algorithmically controlled, uh, difficult word to say twice in <laughs> a row. Um, uh, the one thing I would say about Endow, which it's, it's different from a lot of other projects out there in that you know every single Endow that was ever purchased was purchased with an asset, with gold, with dollars, uh, with euro, um, with whatever. It, it was, there was a solid asset that purchased it. Um, and, and there was none held back for the developers, as you see in many of these projects. You know, 40% of the tokens are, are held back.
1: That, that didn't happen in this scenario. So there's a couple of quick-fire questions that I have. What's your favorite word? Passion. What's your least favorite word? Can't. Can't? And what's the first thing that comes to mind when I'm going to give you four things? Uh, ICO. Be careful. Populism. Determining
0: all of our futures currently, and it's a little scary. For sure.
1: 2020.
0: A breakout year for Cosmo X.
1: And for a kid in school at the moment... um, Where do you think there are golden opportunities over the next 10 years in undeveloped industries? At the moment, uh, in what time frame? So they're at school. So we'll say they're in high school at the moment. Uh, They're going to be looking at what they're going to do in college and looking at where the opportunities lie over the next 10 or 15 years in such a a changing environment. Yeah, I I really would encourage them to take
0: a more general degree initially before specializing. know we talked about earlier about history and politics and what that that gave me it was absolutely invaluable Um, I know you did law you mentioned to me um, and and I know there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, general education in terms of writing and and communicating uh, in law too Um, but I I, I certainly think that that will stand to any entrepreneur or business person uh, before they you know get into areas like finance or accounting or you know whatever it might be a subsequent mba perhaps um but i i would highly encourage because we you know there's so much to take on board um, in today's modern world to have that general macro view uh, that strategic analytical uh, that you think that you're forced to think uh, and argue and and position yourself. Uh, I think it's it's their critical skills that I would I would think about first and then specialize afterwards once you've done that. Because in fact, you, just like me, wanting to be a broadcast journalist and ending up in business and you know, I am I'm, I'm thrilled that it turned out that way.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Kieran. You're very welcome. That was Kieran Hines from Cosimo Ventures a super interesting guy, and a really exciting company. And if you want to learn more about the company, you can visit CosimoVentures.com. Cosimo is spelt C-O-S-I-M-O. So now we turn our attention away from the world of deep tech, to agricultural tech, where Fiona Edwards, the CEO of Apus Protect, has developed an incredible sensory technology They can track the activities in beehives and send feedback to beekeepers. This is completely transforming the beekeeping industry, which, as Fiona explains, is still operating as it did in the Middle Ages. And before we get into talking about the company itself, I think it's worth understanding why honeybees are so valuable to our ecosystem and what they actually do.
2: Pollination is essentially, um, so it's the mechanism uh, that allows flowers or uh, trees and plants that flower to create their uh, nuts, fruits, and berries. So when the honeybee flies up to a flower to collect nectar, which is the, the thing in the flower that they turn into honey, or to collect pollen, so they actually feed pollen to the baby bees, um, they pretty much they rub off the flower and uh, a bit of the pollen sticks to their bodies, and then, as they fly to another flower and they'll rub off that flower and a bit of the pollen from the previous flower falls off them and they collect a bit more of the pollen from that flower. And essentially what the bees end up doing is spreading the pollen from all the flowers in an area onto all the other flowers in the area. And that's really important to allow um, plants to, to kind of basically procreate and it's kind of how they spread their genetic material around the place. And we've got an awful lot of crops that are, are uh, to a greater or lesser extent, dependent on pollination. So almonds are, are the ones that we use as the ultimate example, uh, because honeybee pollination is the only way to trigger that mechanism in, in an almond tree. So you have to have honeybees. Bumblebees won't won't really work. You know, birds won't work. Butterflies won't work. Uh, you need to have honeybees in your almond crops. So that's the one that they just don't exist if you don't have honeybees. Uh, And then there are a whole host of other crops uh, that rely on honeybees for them to be uh, essentially uh, able to produce fruit or nuts or vegetables at the scale that we need for agriculture, for for human agriculture. Uh, So you've got crops like um, blueberries, cranberries, apples, pears, um, kiwi, uh, things like that, cucumbers and watermelons. Um, All of those crops, um, when you introduce bees, you dramatically increase the amount of uh, that fruit or vegetable that is produced per tree or per bush or Mm. whatever you have. Uh, So essentially, while bees aren't completely fundamentally important to the production of, say, strawberries, uh, introducing bees can dramatically increase uh, the amount of strawberries produced per bush. So in order for um, agriculture to be viable, For humans, we need that pollination that's provided by honeybees. Birds, butterflies, bats are also pollinators. But what honeybees are, they're an industrially scalable pollinator. So in a bumblebee hive, so bumblebees would be the ideal pollinator for, say, uh, blueberries. And uh, bumblebees, a nest of bumblebees contains about 24 bumblebees. Uh, So honeybees can pollinate blueberries. They're not the ideal pollinator. They're not the pollinator that nature designed for blueberries but there are 60,000 honeybees in a honeybee hive. So 60,000 slightly poorer pollinators is still more useful for industrial agriculture than a box of 24 bumblebees.
1: And the concept for what would become Apis Protect actually came about when Fiona was at UCC doing her PhD. And she wanted to do it on sensor technology and its application in the real world. And that's when one of her professors recommended that she look into beekeeping and creating sensors for beehives.
2: Even though I didn't know anything about beekeeping, I wasn't a beekeeper. I had never even been stung by a bee, uh, but I thought it was really interesting. Uh, so I signed up uh, to, to spend four years working on that and uh, that went really well. Uh, I really enjoyed my PhD, got to see you know, all different kinds of sensors in beehives and seeing just how much you could understand about a beehive just from um, measuring different parameters inside it. And during my PhD work, I started to learn all about this, you know, this pollination industry that existed throughout the world. So it's not something that we have in Ireland because we don't grow a lot of the crops that are affected by honeybee pollination. But if you're growing, you know, things like almonds, cranberries, blueberries, um, you need that bee pollination. And uh, that these beekeepers really had trouble scaling their operations to suit um, this kind of industrial pollination
1: It was clear that Fiona had created a really innovative solution to a major problem that all beekeepers face. So she co-founded Apris Protect to bring these sensors to the market. The
2: biggest problem that we're helping beekeepers address is the fact that uh, beekeeping, as it stands right now, hasn't really fundamentally changed since almost the Middle Ages. Uh, If you're a beekeeper now, you still do almost exactly what you would have done back then. You uh, go out your beehives you put on your suit you start pulling apart the beehives you know you open them up and start pulling out bees trying to find out what's gone what's going on inside this beehive is there a problem i need to fix um you know what equipment do i need you know you're going to have your truck with all of your stuff in it and you're going to be you know re some hives are going to be feeding other hives you are going to be you know kind of reacting constantly to, to what's going on in the real world. And the problem with that is that it's, it's very limited in scale. You know, you, one beekeeper can only manage so many beehives. And um, what, how we're helping them address that is by putting these sensors inside the beehive. So we put a, a little sensor about the size of a pack of cigarettes. Sorry, I don't have a bar, you know. Yeah. 21st century comparison of size, but that's what it is, uh, into the beehive and into all of the beehives in an operation. And each of these devices is monitoring the beehive that it's inside and it's collecting data, we're using machine learning to understand, you know, how big is this colony? Is this colony healthy? Has something, you know, really dramatic happened to this colony? And we give the beekeeper back all of that information. And what that means is that uh, they can then understand what's happening in all of their beehives without even leaving their office. And that's fundamentally changing how beekeeping works because what we found um, over the last two and a half years as we've been working on this is that at least half of the labor or the labor events that are going on inside the typical beekeeping operation now are completely pointless. They're not improving the, the outcomes of those beehives. And in some cases, they're even actually um, damaging the beehives, like, you know, the uh, for three days after you inspect a beehive, um, you damage the pollination output of that hive. So you don't want to open the beehive unless it really needs to be opened.
1: The challenge for Fiona was getting these sensors to work consistently and be reliable in a really tough environment for technology.
2: When you're talking about agricultural IoT, that becomes a huge challenge because um, one, agricultural Always happens in rural environments. So you're not going to have a nice handy Wi-Fi signal. Nobody's going to be near you with Bluetooth. Uh, it's also, you know, it's in a beehive or it's in there with bees. And bees are not, or a beehive is not a friendly environment for electronics. It's hot, it's damp, it's full of insects that like to, um, you know, rub, rub all the electronics, put wax into any little corners that they can find, clog things up. Uh, So it's been really, really interesting uh, getting the technology to the point where it can survive inside the beehive and also actually successfully send all the data back and not run out of batteries two weeks later. (laughs) But we're we're really happy that we we have tackled all of those challenges. And it's been really, really fun for me as an engineer to to overcome all of those problems.
1: And there have been some major die-offs in colonies in recent years, which is having a huge problem in getting crops pollinated around the world.
2: So our technology can can really help uh, beekeepers address the problems that they've been having in recent years. So um, in many parts of the world, up to half of colonies are dying every year. I know the 2017-2018 the winter in the U.S. was particularly bad. I think uh, 40, it was an average of 42% of colonies were lost in that winter by, by beekeepers in the U.S. And um I think that how we're really helping beekeepers attack those problems is not that we have some kind of silver bullet for a problem that beekeepers are facing. It's that the, the problem that beekeepers are facing is that there's so many things that can go wrong in a beehive, and they can only respond as fast as they humanly can inspect those beehives, understand what's going on, and react. And what we really allow the beekeepers to do is target, you know, target their uh, treatments, target their inspections, target their feeding, and really reduce those really losses as a result of very simple problems like things like starvation, things like queenlessness, um, things like grow infestation, you know, we can help them identify when those treatments are needed. Uh, so that really can help reduce this uh, huge loss problem that beekeepers are seeing all over the world.
1: 2020 is an exciting time for APIS as they begin their commercial launch into the US.
2: Uh, so where we are right now is we're coming up to the end of uh, are commercial, uh, creating a commercial version of the product. So we've got 400 beehives out there. We've got 400 sensors uh, monitoring 20 million beehives and um, they're all prototypes right now. So we are just coming into the final stages of commercializing that and preparing for our launch, which is targeted for about uh, mid 2020 right now. Uh, so commercial launch and then scale up as quickly as possible into beekeepers all over the US.
1: Is there any way that the Digital Irish community can help and support APIS Protect?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the key thing that um, I would love anyone listening to this podcast to, to do would be um, to share this podcast with um, any commercial growers of crops or beekeepers who they might know and help us connect with those audiences because those, those are really the people we want to talk to at the moment. Uh, anyone growing almonds, apples, berries, we would love to to talk to them and how they can get in contact with us is our website apisprotect.com we've got a newsletter up there that you can sign up to and you can make contact with us there
1: I want to say a huge thank you to Kieran and Fiona for joining me on today's episode and thank you for listening as I mentioned at the top of the episode Kieron joined us as a guest thanks to the suggestions that we received from you as the listeners and if you have any further suggestions of guests that you'd like to see on the show please reach out to hello at digitalirish.com and let us know. We'd love to hear from you. And if you want to learn more about the Digital Irish Network, you can visit digitalirish.com or message us on social with hashtag digitalirish. If you are listening to today's episode on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and review the show. It helps us so much, helps us get more exposure and helps us climb the rankings. And you can also find the show on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor and all other major podcasting platforms. For today's episode, I would like to thank Kieran K and Matt Stewart from the Full English Post for producing this episode in association with the Bowery Common. I'm Patrick McAndrew and you've been listening to the Digital Irish Podcast.